Welcome to the Late Fragment podcast. I'm Chloe Fox, and in this series I'll be talking to remarkable octogenarians, people over the age of 80 from all walks of life. Midlife's been exhaustively covered, but what of late life, the people who inevitably are approaching the end of their road? Over the course of a 20-year career in features writing, many of the most lucid, intelligent, thoughtful interviews I conducted or indeed in life the conversations I've had have been with older people looking back over their life and work. People who with the wisdom of hindsight seem better placed than anyone to unpick the present, to truly convey, and now more than ever I believe we need this, what life in all its complicated beauty is all about. Late Fragment is the title of a short poem by Raymond Carver, the final poem in the American Poet's last collection. And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. All of my interview subjects, without exception, are beloved. They are also all, to varying degrees, clever, vibrant, funny people. There's an energy which unites them, which runs through their continuing engagement with the world around them like a thread of gold. But how to dilute such huge lives into a manageable format? I decided to focus on the four topics of conversation that, as the old saying goes, should always be avoided in polite company. Religion, sex, politics and money. Opinion and controversy guaranteed. First up is Carmen Khalil. I won't call her Dame because, as you'll hear, she would hate that. The 84-year-old Australian-born founder of the feminist imprint Virago Press. Carmen's impact on the world of publishing, she published Margaret Atwood, Angela Carter and Iris Murdoch, to name but a few, and famously quit the International Man Booker panel in protest at her fellow judges' awarding of the prize to Philip Roth, was as considerable as her impact on the people who knew her. I say new. Less than three months after we recorded our interview, the leukaemia that was making her feel very unwell at the time claimed Carmen's brilliant, vibrant life. Forthright and charming to the end, she didn't let it diminish her, but I could tell she was weak. For that reason, I ask you to forgive any technical hitches. The interviews were recorded on two separate occasions. Carmen refused to remove a bracelet that was causing sound interference and turn off the computer that you can hear pinging occasionally in the background. Oh, and there's also, you'll be unsurprised to hear, some swearing. I don't do well with rules, Carmen told me in no uncertain terms, which was, of course, her superpower. I hope you enjoy listening. You were born in Melbourne in 1938. Um, You've spoken very directly, actually, about your childhood as purgatory. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, I think I had a very happy childhood and a very unhappy childhood. For many years, I would have looked back on my childhood as purgatory, but I realised that it was a mixed purgatory, really. There are, I think there are two me's, you see. There's the me that always adored many things about my childhood, but the me that was wretchedly unhappy most of the time. Now, uh, unhappy would really become 
uh, the word torture, actually, because going to the convent meant that, because I suppose I'm direct, I believed everything they told me. And thus I got these terrible Catholic scruples. And it meant I was in torture all my life, all my young life, because I always thought I was going to commit a mortal sin. Everything was a mortal sin. Um, you know, I always remember every summer, Christmas, we'd get a new bathing suit, because I lived on the beach, lucky me. And um, there were seersucker ba bathing suits, you know. And the nuns told us it was a mortal sin to show the division between your breasts. And so I'd hoik this swimsuit up to my neck. But even then I thought, well, what if they can see it even, you know, nothing was good enough. I mean, I, got, I had a terrible attack of scruples. But I didn't get them until after the death of my father. And I think the death of my father was the catastrophic thing that changed my life, yes. And you were eight years old? Nine. I was just turned nine. Just turned nine. And he was, by all accounts, a very interesting, charismatic man. Yes, he was, I think, yes. Certainly what I knew of him was he was a man of many mixed talents and genius, actually, um... He won also. He could speak many, many languages, and um, he was a barrister, full-time barrister, and um, also a lecturer in French at Melbourne University. He started the department there with a professor of French at Melbourne University, and a terrible gambler. Dogs, horses, cards, backgammon—they called it tole, which is the Arabic word for backgammon. Um, greyhound racing, anything. Uh, him and your mother were both Catholics. His yes. family were originally from Lebanon and hers from Ireland. Ireland and England. Was it their Catholicism that united them, or was that just... No, they were neighbours across the road. Mm. And they would have met at the local church, yes. Not that I'm sure my father went very often, actually, because from his books recently, I've wondered how, what, how good a Catholic he was... His library was full of people who, writers who were not very favourable to the Catholic Church, to put it mildly. I'm not sure he was a tremendously good Catholic, and my mother was a perfectly adequate Catholic. I mean, she just went to Mass and didn't think you should use your virginity before marriage, that sort of Catholic. Mm. But she wasn't obsessed. But you were brought up only around other Catholics. Yes, never met a Protestant in my life. convent very early on. How old were you? Well, I think I was before four when I was first sent, when my baby brother was born. But that was only for a night or two, so my mother... She was a great one for using convents to get rid of the children. And um, then I... When I went to Mandeville, my father was dying. I was eight when I was sent to boarding school. Eight or nine. Nine, probably. When he was dying? Yes. I mean... It takes a long time to die of Hodgkin's disease. and So do you think it's fair to say that maybe you associate the nuns with a time of great unhappiness and that you've imposed that sense onto how they made you feel? Or did they make you feel the way they made you feel? No, I anyway? think the nuns... When I think about nuns now and the church, I try to work out how intellectually they could have done so much harm 
and committed so many evil acts. And I'm not just thinking of the appalling um, abuse of boys. I'm thinking also of the emotional abuse of girls as well, which, of course, we suffered from. And what went on in their minds to think that children should be treated as we were treated, which was to tell us about the fears of hell, everything was mortal sin, boys were, you know, going to mustn't have anything to do with sex. Um, what was in their minds? Good women, but perverted by the the establishment, the church, to which they'd given their allegiance. And I'm wondering, when you say that the nuns emotionally abused you... Oh, yes. Can you expand a little on that? Yes, I can. I always remember uh, weeping in the green corridor. and um, We had this corridor, and I don't know why I would have been weeping, but I think probably because one of my relations had died because I have two, so many relations in Melbourne because of being Catholic. Sports mistress was um, my cousin. She was called Gay Porter. And uh, in the assembly one day, Mother Assumpter announced that Gay wouldn't be coming in today because her grandmother had died. Well, her grandmother was my great-aunt Sissy, and I knew that my mother would be in agony that Aunt Sissy had died. And I, I burst into floods of tears... And, 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 you know, I, I mean, it was a terrible shock that Aunt Sissy had died. And um, Mother or something said, how am I to know who that little girl's related to? You know, that's the sort of thing. But when, whenever she saw my Lebanese uncle, she was all over them like a rash because they wanted their money. So no basic human kindness shown towards... Some you. of the nuns certainly did, yes. But their ignorance in the context of what you learn when you go to university and when you read outside the ghetto of the Catholic Church, their ignorance was a form of abuse and their insistence on instilling in you fear of men and sex was, I think, emotional abuse. Uh, my friend Polly Devlin always said it was like having a, emotion, uh, like a, a bell jar put over your sexuality. But you never challenged it at the time. Never. You were compliant because you've become someone who's very happy to try to break down boundaries. But yes. as a child, you were a, a good girl. <laughs> well, I was, I was persecuted by these boundaries and my brain eventually pointed out to me how erroneous most of their beliefs were, but also how evil some of their behaviour was. Mm. I think cruelty to children is awful. I agree. And you were very bright, presumably. I'm told I was, yes. And did they encourage you in that? No. No? No, not at all. I encouraged myself. That was okay. So you could read and be interested despite them? Oh, absolutely. That's the other good side of my childhood. I've written about that, my father's library and my mother's to some it was my father's library he was an omnivorous um, how do you pronounce reader and mm. left behind a vast library um, which I read and I suppose it was my way of getting near to him mm. and did you escape into books 
when you were sad? When you've got something like Catholic scruples and or phobias, I suppose you call them, you never escape. You live with it all day, all night. Um, were you frightened of men? Well, I couldn't be really, because I had brothers, which I was, you know, very lucky, and uncles. Mm. Um, was I frightened of my uncles? Yes, I was. They were bullies. But I wasn't frightened. I wonder how frightened I was of them. I was just that I was too young. I was just waiting to get big enough to sort of say, fuck you, if you know what I mean. But I never did to them. I always was good to them. I loved them, really. When were you big enough to say fuck you to the Catholic Church? As soon as I lost my virginity, um, which was the big thing, you know, we weren't allowed to sleep with any men before saying, you know, we weren't allowed to touch you or anything. And then I fell in love with a married man when I came to London. I must have sort of subconsciously wanted to do it all. And um, I thought, what a load of all. And... Um, what year was this, 1960? I was 22. So after the convent, you'd been to Melbourne University mm. and then you decided to come to Europe. I just wanted to leave home. You just had to get out. I had to get out. Mm. No, I couldn't possibly have lived that life. So 21-year-old Carmen arrives in Europe, free. Was... 1960s London, a place of great sexual liberation? Well, not before. The late 60s was when it all began, really. And I had my first abortion before the act. When was the act? Was it 63? Yeah. And I had to have it on the National Health. And to get it on the National Health, you had to be certified insane, by the, you know, or completely unfit to have a baby. But you were very young. And the Catholic in you must have been horrified? No, not at all. Not at all. Though I did put down Catholic. I had the abortion at the Middlesex Hospital. They've now pulled it down. And when I entered, they say, what's your religion? I put Catholic, nincompoop. And um, <laughs> the priest came to see me and he said, I, I, I hope you realise you've committed the unforgivable sin. <gasps> yes. Does it still target your sleeve, your faith? Ever. Not that it is your faith, but what was your faith? It, I, want to, I want to defeat it, and I can't. No. <laughs> Do you see? Yes. That's why, you know, don't mention that to me. No, I don't agree with you. <laughs> Do you have many Catholic friends? I've got some, yes, I certainly have. Um, most of them went to St Mary's Ascot. Um, and then, you know, when I published Hilary Mantel... She turned out to be a Catholic. Yes. I have to say that I think her views of the Catholic Church are very similar to mine. Yes, I think so. I didn't know you'd published Hilary Yes, Mantel. I published all her first books. I'm... I tell you, she's got much more everything in every way, but I've sent the same rage in her that I have about the Catholic Church when she writes about it. There's a sort of rage that you can't do anything to point out to other people what damage it's done. Here's a question, though. A rage like that, which has driven you forwards and onwards in so many positive ways in your life, mm. would you want to be without that rage? Would you rather none of it had happened and you were left without a rage? 
Oh, I think it would have been better had I um, been less enraged. Yes, I do. But some of it might be just the way I was born, don't you think? I do. Impatience and terribly low boredom threshold and stuff like that. But you have been driven forwards, and we will come on to it, but by a sense of wanting to change the world, by a, a furious sense, I suppose, of injustice. Injustice, yes. And injustice. that must come from the convent. Yes, it does. The injustice of that. Mm. The Actually, come to think of it, which we haven't talked about, the injustice to, to men. I mean, why were we trained to think of men as these, um, you know... Hostile objects who are going to ruin us and lose our souls, darling. Not ruin us, lose our souls. Let's move on to what you became, because you have said that whatever they wanted you to be, you were not going to be. And I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what they wanted you to be was a lady. A lady married with children. And that was absolutely the antithesis of what you wanted? I would never, under any circumstances replicate my mother's life. Never. Nothing would make me do it. I'm quite sure that's why I haven't married. Oh. Just the prison of it. Prison of it. Mm. Mm. So you have no regrets about that? None. founded Virago in 1972, the first feminist publishing house, Mm. books written by women for women. Mm. And your aim, as I believe you said on the 50th anniversary the other day, was simple. It was to change the world for women. And men. And men. I'm interested in that. That was my question. Yes. That's in the very first leaflet. Um, I, you can see it, in, I think, online in the British Library. It was for men and women, you know, because inequality between men and women damages everyone, including the children. You said once how splendid it was for a woman born in 1938 to run a business and to be a boss. Yes. Albeit a flawed one, in the service of writers, books and social change. It was groundbreaking what you did. Can you see that? No. Everybody else does see it. I can see that. I can't see myself in that way. I mean, I just... um, And my friends get very cross with me about it. I don't see myself... uh, I just did what came naturally to me. It was hard work, though, presumably. Tremendous work. Work always came first, but you've got to also remember that I adored work. I love to work. I work still. I mean, yeah, that's what keeps me going. Has it been your most fulfilling relationship? Yes. Yes, work has been. And continues to be. Continues to be, yes. Do you feel that um, your literary achievements have been overshadowed by the feminist label? Yes, because none of them take any notice of the fact that I was publisher of Chatter and Windus and Hogarth Press for t- 11 years. It's never mentioned just Virago. Poor Virago, lumbered with me. You know, and Chatto get off scot-free, whereas I ran both those companies for the same period of time. No, I was 
much longer with Farago because I was always chair of Farago until 1995. Why did you leave publishing ultimately? Oh, um, very, very simple. And I suppose it does connect with what you're asking me about. Um, because publishing companies, I began when publishing companies were small. And then when I ran Choto and Windows, it was part of a group that was just three small British publishing houses. And they were going bankrupt, and they sold themselves to Random House. Then Random House sold them to Bertelsmann. Globalisation of publishing. Very nice people, a lot of them. But you had no more control over what you published. And um, three things. My friend Angie, Angela Carter, sent me the synopsis for her last novel. It was called Adela. And... Um, I had to go to the boss for the money. I couldn't give the money myself, you see, anymore. I had to get... Oh, I could, up to a certain point. But if you wanted to give her proper money, um, and by this time she was getting very well known, you had to go to Simon Master, who was the chief honcho of Random House, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he sent me a letter, which is in the archive, everybody can read it, and I hope they do, saying this was obviously a minor work and letting me offer £50,000 for it. And I knew that Martin Amos, upstairs at Cape, had submitted his book and was being offered £400,000 the same day. And, I mean, when I tell people that story, they say, become, you've been proved right because Angie's become a very great success. Um, I mean, she's on set books and read everywhere now. Well, not, not everybody reads it, but you know what I mean. Yes. I'm not so sure that's true of Martin, though he's a great figure, a great literary figure. That was one reason. And then, uh, yes, I wanted to buy Donna Tart, The Secret History, and I needed another £50,000 to get it, and he wouldn't give it to me. That was the second reason. Oh, fuck that. Um, that would have made me money, you know. And then the third reason, which is divine, because I published Chatter and Win I was the publisher of Chatter and Winters and Hogarth Press, we published all of Freud. Mm. Now, Freud, we were not permitted to publish Freud in anything but a collected edition of Freud's work. Freud, 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 Freud. So, with Norton, an American publisher, every 20 years we reprinted Freud. Could be 10, I've forgotten. For the Tavistock, that now questionable psychiatric place. They were the um, owners of the copyright, I think. I think. Anyway, um, we, we had these uh, stock control meetings under this new... And this lunatic man said to me, you have 120 years stock of Freud and I'm remaindering them. And I looked at him and I said, are you an absolute idiot? I, I mean, I just told him he was a man. And I said, you shouldn't be in this job. You know nothing about anything. You're an absolute poltroon. <laughs> and um, because, you know, it wasn't. It was the, the, it was the annual 10-year reprint of the complete works of Freud. And that was the sort of gap between the management of publishing. Yes. And I thought, I can't go on with this. So I said, I'm leaving. I didn't do it in a half. I just said, I can't do it anymore. I'm not the right sort of person for this form of publishing. You have mixed feelings about the country that you call home. Mm. And yet, you are a very well-loved member of its establishment in lots of ways. Am I? Well, you're a dame. Well, that's a drawback, isn't and it? And a member yeah. of the MCC. Yes. <laughs> yes, but now, look, let's get on to that. The, the England that I 
love came from literature, yes? Yes. It came from being here in the 60s, Harold Wilson, all sorts of, you know, James, leading up to even the flawed Tony Blair. But once Margaret Thatcher... Once Margaret Thatcher changed... She really changed the welfare state, and I suppose I really did believe in that new arrangement of how English people lived with each other. And I hoped that, I hoped that uh, British people did, but now I've read Chucky Bain, I see that they didn't. That the welfare state made no difference to the poor. Hardly at all. Is that the best thing for you about literature, is the doors that it can open into understanding of other worlds? And other people's lives. Don't you love other people's lives? Yes. Yes, I want to know everything about other people's lives. Tell me a story. And is that what it is? Mm. If you had to fundamentally describe the reason for your love of literature? Yes, I think, say, when I'm talking with my more literary friends, I realise that textually I'm not going to investigate it in the way that they do. I don't dig into every hole, so to speak. I, I, I suppose, really, what I love is a book of whatever kind that will give great joy to the person who picks it up and reads it, you know? Whatever mm. it is, even it's sort of um, screw-tops I have known, that sort of thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I suppose it's the happiness in books and the joy in books that I've always loved. Telling the story is very, very major for that. And then I love people's life stories. Mm. I love to know how other people live. Mm. Is there hope in a future in which there will always be great books, do you think? I do think, actually. Because, I mean, it's true, for example, I can't do TikTok and I don't do much social media. I just look at the occasional tweet and I do wish my friends weren't on Instagram so much. It's sort of vaguely embarrassing, isn't it? Um... (laughs) Uh, but I don't think I'm in a position to answer that because what do younger people want? You know, I'm at the end of my life. If that's what they want, that's what they'll get. In his review of this book in The Guardian, Peter Conrad which you'll probably remember, spoke of your lifelong campaign to challenge Britain's snotty imperial delusion. Yes, I think that's right. Is that fair? It's become ragingly fair. It wasn't here when I first came here, no. But it's grown on me from living here, yeah. And And yet you stay here. I wish I hadn't. Do you? Oh, God, yes. So England has disappointed you. Very much, yeah. And yet, the intellectual stimulation, social... Well, London. Do you think London's England? Well, that's a good question. Oh. Maybe. And you accepted a damehood? Now, that was a big effort. Too funny. We were talking about that on Saturday night, actually. Went out for the first time on Saturday night. Uh, And I was sitting next to Jules, Julian Barnes, and... They love to call me Dame because they know how much I hate it. (laughs) And um, uh, what happened was I was offered this Damery and I thought, oh, God, I can't take it. And I thought, 
I've got to think of my work for Virago, you know, that's what they gave it to me for. And the women publishing house and all that stuff. And uh, So I rang Julian Barnes, and Jules has refused everything, you know. And um, I said, Jules, what should I do? And he said, you should take it. So I just did what he told me to do. Did he? Yeah. And he said you should take it for Virago. Yes, I think that's... Whether he added Virago or not, I'm not sure. But the thing is, if you're a single woman and you've got a reputation for being impossible, it has been a great help. Has it? Being a dame. In what sense? Well, you ring up British Gas, you say, I'm 83, I can't cope with any of this. Oh, yes, Dame Carmen. We'll help you straight away. Really? Yeah. Do you get cross if a letter arrives without Dame on it? Not at all. I get cross if it arrives with. <laughs> no, I never use it except for um, I'm when I want some, you know, I need something. Who gave it to you, the Queen? Uh, Princess Anne. Princess Anne. And she said to me, do we still need a feminist publishing company? I said, I think so. <laughs> really? Yes. That's so that was all. I didn't enjoy it. You know, I very much didn't enjoy it. And I snuck in with my people. Um, I, I took with my handbag, Peter Ed, you know, the actor? Yeah. So Peter and I went off to that place that's closed now. I gave him a very posh lunch. But I wouldn't have been able to do it if Peter hadn't been my handbag. So you felt quite conflicted about it? Quite! British Empire. Do you think if you... Um write a letter to a newspaper or resign from... Which one have you resigned from and which one haven't you The resigned? Society of Authors. No, I don't use the So dame. if you write a letter or resign from the Society of Authors... Do no, you I didn't use Dame. I don't think I did. No. But you'll often find that they pop, they pop back in if yeah. it becomes public. Yeah. Because I raised the subject of cancel culture with the bookseller. So that went online and everybody saw it. Whether they call me Dame or not, I don't know. I mean, 99% of the time I don't use it. Would you have gone back to Australia? No. Never? No. Because? Well, for years and years and years, they had governments that were worse than here. Mm. Whereas in France, at least you're in a republic, and you don't understand everything. I was going to ask you what have been your extravagances in your life. I imagine a house in France was one of them. Is what? it a very personal question to ask you? No. What? If you earned good money doing um, what you did. Well, let me see if I can go through this with you. It was always very sporadic. Um, when I sold Virago to Chateau Cave and Bodley Head, pretty sure I got some money. And... I'm pretty sure Coots Bank handled it for me through Pat Kavanagh. And I'm pretty sure Coots lost some of it for me. My bad temper about that has gone puff of smoke was a long time ago. Then when I was a publisher, I, I earned about £50,000 a year in 1990. And I always remember going in to see Simon Master once we'd been sold to this publisher or another publisher, Random House, but I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I got a light bulb in my head and I went into Simon Master who was the chief honcho I said you're paying David Godwin who was running Cape and I was running Chateau more than me aren't you and he scratched his balls that was his habit (laughs) (laughs) I mean isn't that irritating did he answer your question yes he said yes we are and you said I don't know what I said but it's just 
It's such a me too thing, isn't it? Well, it is. But you didn't fight that fight. I don't know if I did or didn't, darling. I suppose I got a rise. But I can't remember. I just know my fury when it came to me that I shouldn't have had to had the light bulb. Do you see? Yes, I do see. Are you interested in money? Has money motivated you in your life? Very much and very much not. Um, I worry about it now because I'm coming to the end of it because I haven't earned any money since I left publishing much, you know. Mm. And that's 1995 and I had a fixed pension. So now I'm much poorer than I ever was. Um, Did you gauge your success in terms of the money you made? Never. Or was it incidental? I never thought about any of that. Your business sense when you started Virago, was it something innate or something that you had to learn? I learned the practical sides of it, but loving it must have been innate, don't you think? I'm sure. I loved it. I think I've never um, given it enough attention. Mm. That would be my summary of my attitude to money and be very grateful for any that came my way. Then I spend it. Are you extravagant? I've got friends who are so much more extravagant than I am, so... You'd have to... I mean, I'm, I'm extravagant. Oh, yes. I have one friend who does think I'm extravagant. Well, I don't fuss about money much, you know what I mean? When my friends come, I'm extravagant. You like good food, mm. good wine. Wine, I'm extravagant. But then I've got a lot of wine friends. Have you? Mm. So I get really good wine. I think, don't you that once you reach a certain stage in your life, that one's entitled to indulge in your passions. Aren't you? Well, I don't think now we are, no. I mean, if I bought a skirt I don't need now, and the reason I buy skirts is because I've never fitted dresses because I'm sort of a 10, but a short 10, and an English ten. That's what was another reason I loved living in France. You could buy clothes, <laughs> you could buy dresses that fitted you because they're shorter. <laughs> they do are. you follow? Yes, I do. And but, yeah, so I've always got skirts and tops. Um, so, but I wouldn't buy one now because I can't get out of my head what you hear about these kids not having enough to eat. I've got enough skirts. But do you see? Mm. Do you give money to charity? Quite a bit, yeah. When did you retire officially? What age were you? I was 55. I mean, I was far too individualist, you know, to, to, to be part of a big corporation whereby you had to do everything by the rule book and mm. you can't publish this because some salesperson is going to tell you you can't publish it. Do you see what I mean? There's still too few women running publishing houses. There's still too many salesmen telling you what to publish. Mm. Too many accountants driving you bananas. Mm. So it was the money that that you walked away from ultimately. Yeah. The fact that money was the primary driving force in publishing, or became it. Also control by sales and money men. Mm. I don't want to know what they think. I want them to help me publish what I want to publish. Mm. I'm a very old-fashioned sort of person. Mm. I want to say, look, I want to publish this book. I think it's a great book. We can make it work. And then they say, yes, come, but I don't agree with you. But I don't want to be told you can't publish it. I don't see it. I don't see it by the sales department. I need to ask you, but about getting older, 
and looking back inevitably mm. when you do you look back mm. are you nostalgic as you get older or um i think i live 50 50 with two carmens there's the carmen that says why did you do that carmen you know why did you have to say that Philip Roth sat on your face when what you really didn't like was his actual novels. You know, you just didn't enjoy them enough to give him the... And also he was American, which I was very hostile to, because an American had won the year before. How international is that? Um, also, there's that sort of male club thing about... You know, that I was telling you about Martin Amis getting 400,000 and Angie getting 50. I couldn't possibly vote for Philip Roth. No. So two Carmens, one That's Carmen. Carmen, and the other? The other Carmen has a wonderful life with friends and neighbours and animals and movies and food and everything like that. So that Carmen has had a very good life. I mean, she's very happy with what she's got, you know. It's a modest little cottage, this, but I'm very happy in it. And you read voraciously. Your mind is fully intact. Do you know, I haven't read anything as much. I've read a great deal since I got sick. And you love cricket? I love my cricket. It's coming on again tomorrow. You love it. So you get still a lot of pleasure from your life and you don't feel... I mean, being ill is very unsettling, isn't it? Well, I was thinking about loneliness. Uh, when I got really ill with the double infection, I thought, am I lonely? And I thought, this must be loneliness. But I very rarely am, do you see? But I think when you get old and you're single, so I've said this to all my friends, I think, you know, I should have got married. Somebody to look after me. And they all say... <laughs> Can you imagine what they all say? Yes. <laughs> I don't even have to but tell, tell you. tell me what they say. They say, come you would... <laughs> You would be looking after him or her, had I been, whatever the word is, um, lesbian, which I was not. But I think it's very rare when people have a perfect ending of life. I think, possibly, one of the reasons people dread the end is that there's no one who can help you towards it, really. You just have to help yourself. Everybody realises at the last moment, you're by yourself... And in my case, not meeting my maker, but ending, you know, a life I've absolutely adored, really, even though it was full of pain and suffering and misbehaviour. Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show on your podcast app of choice. In the next episode, I'll be talking to playwright Tom Stoppard about his life, work and beliefs. And there are many more wonderful minds in the pipeline. In the meantime, my thanks to Vic Avril for her invaluable production help, to Harry Dundas for the original theme music and to Joe Fox for the artwork. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>